0: Everyone, this is ETS on the grid. I am your host Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Aaron Hardick. How is it going, Aaron?
1: It's going well today, Dylan. It's pretty hot, which is what we will be talking about on this episode. But um, it's a nice morning.
0: Also joining us today is Senior Director of Content and Research Chris Moyer. Chris, happy to have you back on the show. How are you?
2: I'm great, Dylan. It's great to be back on the podcast and talking with you and Aaron.
0: Yes. So, uh, Chris here is rejoining us to talk about heat and resiliency in the wake of a crazy summer of weather. Last week marked the end of the hottest heat wave in 140 years, during which close to a million people lost power nationwide. The exact numbers tend to vary from source to source. Now, obviously the toll these sorts of intense weather events place on communities is often quite extensive from both a financial and a human perspective, but just looking at the, the strain on the grid, How would you say, how would would you both
2: say the affected regions fared? Dylan, I think that by and large, the affected regions fared about as well as can be expected. And this was a global heat wave that progressed over a a multiple week period from the United States to Europe and, and ultimately to Japan and Northern Asia. So we've seen the impact on cities and on utilities and on people, most importantly, throughout the world. As you mentioned, hundreds of thousands of of utility customers lost power. This exacerbates some of the dangers that we see with these summer heat waves, which can be one of the most unseen and dangerous extreme weather formats. People often pay attention to the hurricanes or the tornadoes, the cyclones that occur because of extreme weather and the the rising uh, temperatures related to global climate change, but heat waves they're really the silent killer because it, it takes some time for uh, statisticians to look at the expected number of deaths in a given window and how that might rise related to a heat wave. We've seen some pretty uh, aggressive uh, tactics used by cities around the world to, to combat this latest heat wave uh, and utilities as their partners to try to keep power on. Not everything was perfectly successful, but by and large, the response has been pretty good. Can this be a harbinger for uh, how we deal with future climate-related heat events is is the question.
1: And the other thing to take into account, which I think a lot of folks or the general public doesn't realize, is when a heat wave like this comes, outages happen for... A variety of reasons, it's not simply because the grid is just overwhelmed and outages happen because demand is too high. There are other things that can cause outages on the grid during a heat wave. Sometimes those are even planned outages, and so we saw that happen across the country. We can go into some specific numbers here so in in New York, about fifty thousand people went without power. But that wasn't because of equipment failure. The utility actually did that on on purpose. They shut down um, equipment uh, because of the potential of failure. Um, About 30,000, there's about a 30,000 person blackout the week previously, which was due uh, to equipment failure. So different things can actually cause outages during a heat wave.
2: Exactly that, Aaron. And heat waves are often associated with violent summer storms. And that was what ended up affecting so many customers in the Midwest and particularly Southeast Michigan. More than 900,000 customers between DTE and Consumers Energy lost power. And that was primarily not the heat, but the, the storms that uh, were associated with the heat wave.
0: I, I mean, I mean, at that point, you kind of gotta just feel bad for the utilities that there's so many different different aspects of this one weather event that that you have to take into account. Aaron, just uh, expanding on what you just said, there's the planned shutdowns. There are other things that can cause the outages. At the very basic level, why can intense heat cause outages? Because at first glance, that seems a little counterintuitive.
1: Let me liken it to a sports analogy, because you know that's. I just love sports. Dirk Nowitzki played the NBA, the 2011 uh, NBA Finals with a severe cold. The same way that an athlete playing with a cold is under extra stress, the grid is under extra stress when conditions aren't uh, favorable. So excessive heat can cause transmission lines to to become overheated and sag, and therefore they become less efficient. And we have to take into account that everybody knows that the grid is, is pretty old and there are old assets on there that need uh, consistent maintenance and repairs. And a lot of times when utilities are expecting uh, weather events or like this large heat waves, they will have assets that are maybe under repair that they have to take out of. Um, repair and try to put them back on the grid so that they can equate for the rise in demand and so those assets aren't necessarily operating um, under the best conditions that they could be so these the heat can affect the efficiency of assets on the grid for for that reason because they're under more stress the conditions aren't favorable so things can things can break more easily um, they can stop working. Uh, so that—that's pretty much why, done.
0: That's a—that's a very apt I mean, analogy. It... Except this is a run our test podcast. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Metaworld world
2: peace no, no longer run our test. Um, you know, as Aaron so accurately described the situation, what ends up putting the additional strain on this on these assets is the natural human behavioral response. It's hot. I'm going to turn my air conditioning on. And utilities have become more sophisticated in communicating with their customers. You saw over the, the week, directly preceding the, the, the heat wave in the middle of July, utilities around the country reaching out to their customers in a proactive way, saying, let's beat the heat together. And, and to do that, they're asking customers not to turn their air conditioning down to 70 or 68 degrees. But you can be comfortable and cool if you run a fan and maybe your air conditioning's at 75. Are you not at home? Turn your air conditioning off. All of these things, these subtle behavioral demand response initiatives that utilities were, were deploying helped to ensure, in, 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 in my opinion, that the, the power outages were not as severe as might have, as might have been in the past when you have... 100 plus degree heat in the middle of the summer affecting more than 100 million people around the United States.
1: I believe you had like grid operators who are sending out these public announcements. I know that PJM issued what they call, you know, a hot weather alert, essentially, you know, informing people that if you run your AC, you know, expect for a lot of people to be running their AC so there can be outages. So if you don't need to run it, then don't run it. I heard uh, I, I think I read that there also were going as far as saying cover vents, AC vents in rooms that you're not even using uh, to try to just limit that usage because people are going to turn on their ACs when it gets hot. So whatever the utility can do to, not deter customers, but inform customers of how their usage is going to affect the overall system. That was the best way for them to really be proactive about the situation.
2: DTE, my my utility, sent out a, uh, a, an email on July 18th, uh, and it listed five actions that people can take. But it, it did start with uh, this, this, I think, important opening sentence. DTE wants you to remain safe and comfortable. They are cognizant of the dangers that a, that a heat wave with heat indexes of over 100 degrees can cause in the upper Midwest. That's just not the temperature that we're used to here in Detroit. Uh, but those, those five, uh, and we're gonna get into that a little bit more. Uh, as we talk the five uh recommendations that they had run a ceiling fan to create a cool breeze close blinds and curtains on south and west facing windows as aaron said remove anything that blocks registers avoid activities that add heat and humidity to your home uh, and so postponing laundry till to the night and air dry washing clothing instead of putting it in the dryer that also adds a strain to the to add additional demand to the grid and then they they promoted energy star room air conditioning products uh and and mentioned also that you can get a rebate through the utility when you purchase some of these more energy efficient uh, efficient uh energy star products
1: this is actually, you know, something that Austin Energy has to do pretty often because, you know, it always gets hot here in Texas and ERCOT's, you know, highest peak is uh, peak demand is always during the summer, late July. Uh, so they're always tweeting out, you know, one of the things that they always say, and it's really stuck with me. I think I read it at least two years ago in a little mail-out pamphlet that came in my paper bill in the mail, and it said, uh, ceiling fans, cool people, not room. So just turn off, you know, turn off the ceiling fan if you're not in the room particularly. Also, I just remembered that I actually have a koozie that has tips for reducing (laughs) your energy usage uh, during the summer. I know you guys know how much I love koozies, and this combination of koozie and energy efficiency is pretty hilarious given the topic that we have. It says the power to save Texas, and you can actually go to powertosavetexas.org. Number one on the back of the koozie is raise your thermostat just 2% to save up to 16%. Um, keep your blinds closed. Use ceiling fans when you are in the room. And then four is to find, find money saving tips and energy saving tips by going to power to save texas dot org. But it just goes to show that you know utilities and other organizations are really thinking about how to engage customers in different ways and educate them around their energy usage and how it will impact the grid, especially during these times when everybody wants to stay cool, but we have to think about collectively what that's going to mean for the system.
0: So it sounds like, because as you said, Texas is really hot. That there's that they have a lot of that they have a lot of experience with this sort of thing, and therefore um, are able to kind of help other people who don't experience as intense heat in the summer to model their policies and and potential investments. So what what are utilities doing to make their infrastructure more resilient in the event of disasters? We you know we just talked about that about what Erco's is doing, but what other things have you seen? I know, I know Chris, you recently wrote an article about uh, grid modernization through the lens of re- resiliency demanded by increased frequency and intensity of disasters.
2: Yeah, so uh, people can check out that that article, how utilities are dealing with the record heat uh, at etsinsights.com. But as you so rightly point out, this is not just a demand response and energy efficiency question that utilities are are trying to proactively communicate with customers. There's also a a grid modernization element to this that that helps prepare and harden a grid so that it is more resilient. One of the biggest dangers that utilities face around the globe is when something comes into contact, uh, why, why about, excuse me, One of the biggest dangers that utilities face towards losing power uh, is when something comes into contact with their transmission or distribution line. This can cause these massive outages. Utilities around the globe are starting to use geographic information systems, advanced geographic information systems, to get a better understanding of how their assets are interplaying with the surrounding environment. In, in my particular, in the article that that I just wrote, I I take a look at what uh, the experience that we that Australia has had in relation to heat waves that occur on um, and and cause brush fires. Endeavour Energy, New South Wales, has recently begun using spatial data technology known as light detection and range ranging data (LiDAR) to prevent brush fires. This technology. Um, provides a very complex, accurate, three-dimensional model of the network and surrounding vegetation. While brush fires are of particular interest to Australian utilities, this same LIDAR technology is can be a- applicable to utilities throughout the Northeast and the Midwest that have uh, big, tall trees, extensive vegetation, that when a lightning strike occurs, uh could come down and, and hit a distribution line or a transmission line and using LIDAR uh utilities can can project out the growth of vegetation around an asset so that they can do proactive maintenance on that. Everybody loves vegetation management. Uh, it, it's an old utility joke that it, it's one of the most dry topics in the industry. But the truth is that it is coming to real vogue right now because, uh, through GIS, uh, vegetation management is going to be crucial to ensure, uh, the power stays on and that safety, uh, is, is always paramount. We, we saw this with the fires last year in California. Uh, a little bit more aggressive vegetation management and de-electrifying transmission lines could have potentially prevented the campfire in PGE's territory.
1: Another important thing to mention, especially because we talk a lot about the water-energy nexus when it comes to resiliency in the grid um, and extreme weather events, particularly heat-related, is there's a lot of, you know, a lot of water is used to cool coal and nuclear plants and when those large traditional generation sources are up and running and they're running and running and running and and they're getting hot if there's not enough cool water to to cool those plants down then they can trip offline and they can go down because they be they become overheated because the water that that was previously used to cool those plants is now too hot because of the outside temperatures. So that can also affect the resiliency of the grid because you have to keep the plants cool to keep them running. And if the water's too hot to keep the plants cool, then the, the, the plants are going to overheat and trip offline. So just another way that we have to think about resiliency and weather is um, that being said, no plants tripped offline this most recent heat wave because of the water. The water didn't get too hot, um, but that has happened before in the past
2: well and and as we project out into the future, and this is something that i that I definitely want to address as we continue this conversation, how does climate change impact this as as the world moves. Towards one degree warming centigrade, two degrees warming centigrade, which is the projections between 2050 and 2100, the likelihood that these events are going to become uh, more extreme, more devastating, and more frequent uh, is, is uh, rises. And consequently, just as you were saying, Aaron, um, some of uh, the water cooling potential for for plants could be impacted. Hopefully, by that time, utilities will have increasingly transitioned to a more decarbonized, less water-intensive energy uh, generation model. I would say that it's absolutely essential that they do, but if, if, if they don't, we, we will see the potential from for, uh, blackouts and brownouts related to uh, lack of an inability to, to properly cool equipment at the generation stations.
0: Well, I mean you say hopefully by that point, but that point is kind of here. None of those plants were shut down during during this most recent heat wave, but those events are are happening and are going to continue to happen. So hopefully that we're we're sort of getting there. And I, I guess that's the next question I wanted to ask was as these as these events become more regular and more intense, can we look to this heat wave and the subsequent storms as a moment when we proved that the U.S. electric grid has a system for dealing with these events? Because, as you said, you know the, the the damage was a lot better than it it could have been, especially when compared to to uh, other recent natural disasters that had news cycles that lasted a long time.
2: Well, it, it, but again, Dylan, the heat wave just progressed around around the world and and moved on to to Europe during the middle of the week, and and TEPCO in Japan is dealing with it right now. So this is a global phenomenon, uh, and Europe has some different issues with how they uh, their grid handles heat waves. They they just don't have the penetration of HVAC units that the United States does, and so consequently. The, the demand on the grid doesn't rise as dramatically because people don't use air conditioning as frequently as, as people in North America do. That being said, that causes significant health challenges to, to Europe as a region, uh, that we could also potentially eventually see in North America. Japan does have a slightly higher rate of, of air conditioning units and TEPCO has, has had to deal with this, um, is dealing with this now. But I, I, I think the broader point that you're trying to, to, to get at is, is how does climate change, how, how do utilities and cities, municipalities, regions, and, and governments deal with both sides of the, the extreme heat challenge? There's the, the business side, there's the utility side of making sure the power stays on, the lights stay on, the the, the fans and the air conditioning units stay on. And then there's the the health impact of climate change. And for many years, it's been said that we can't attribute any single weather event to the impact of climate change. But more and more, attribution science has started to, to become more possible with the increased data that we have. And attribution studies really started as far back as 2003, after the European heat wave that killed uh, thousands of people at that time, um, and average temperatures were the highest in that 140-year reporting period, 130-year reporting period at that point. Uh, this re- most recent heat wave actually exceeded what we saw in 2003, but because of some better planning, we did not experience the, the number of deaths that were experienced in 2003, But this World Weather Attribution Project, which is a global collaboration between experts uh, in this analysis, studies the likelihood that an extreme weather event can be blamed on climate change. To study these types of events, they examine how greenhouse gases and other contributing factors, like the urban heat island effect, change the expected weather outcomes between a model of a world without, without excess greenhouse gases and the realities of our planet today. They examined the first major heat wave, this World Weather Attribution Project examined the first major heat wave of this summer, 2019, and found, uh, that occurred in Europe, and found that it was a 1 in 30 year event uh, in the world that we live in today. And it was made five times more likely because of climate change. They haven't been able to study this this most recent one, and there isn't a there isn't a correlation and causation between what occurred in June and what occurred in July. But the point is that if June's heat wave was a one in thirty year event and July's heat wave was even hotter, but this is just becoming an extremely frequent occurrence is certainly exacerbated by anthro, uh, anthropogenic causes.
0: I guess that's sort of what I was getting at was. Did this heat wave, at least for the U.S., represent a point in which we were, we demonstrated that our grid is becoming more resilient because there were fewer unplanned di- uh, disasters with infrastructure and because we had ways of mitigating it through a combination of education and controlled shutdowns?
1: I don't know if it proved that we are ready for these types of events, which Chris just you know outlined that we, we need to be expecting to happen more and more uh, given climate change. But what I think it did show is that utilities and energy providers are trying to be proactive about how to mitigate some of the consequences of these heat waves. A lot of People, a lot of utilities and energy providers are taking different approaches for doing this. And to me, it was almost like people are saying, we're just gonna try this, 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 and this and kind of see what works. And for instance, you know, alerting the you know, alerting your service territory that increased AC usage may cause an outage. So you know, don't use it. There were, I believe it was maybe in Chicago someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but they also just deployed these diesel trucks um, that allowed the community to get clean water and power their phones, you know, uh, plug-in appliances if they were experiencing an outage. That's another way to kind of mitigate those risks. There are other, you know, regions that were trying different things, and so I think it just showed that utilities and energy providers are being more proactive, but I don't think it necessarily showed that we have the right solution for really dealing with these things. I think it just indicated that there's forward momentum, but not necessarily that a solution has been found.
2: I would agree with that. And in terms of the the, the long answer that I just gave about the potential impact of climate change and how we study and examine heat waves, there, there's As much grid modernization as a utility can can put to harden and make the grid more resilient, utilities and cities, governments in general, need to be doing things that simultaneously move us towards a more decarbonized energy system. All the grid modernization and resiliency planning in the world is only going to get you so far if we're not also simultaneously tackling the symptomatic root causes that exacerbate extreme weather and extreme heat and and this is when this is something that we discuss extensively at our city of the future conferences the The next one is in at, at the end of February in san antonio we'll have another one in twenty twenty in, in spokane uh later in the year, but when we talk about this it's the holistic approach with a people centric focus
0: just the one final thing I, I want to I want to ask is uh, I guess this is a little this is a little less technical and I guess a little more editorial, but isn't it kind of messed up that we're at this point where we're talking about this in this sort of banal regularity when things that, when it's like disasters and people's lives are on the line, you know, as a happy ending to the podcast, and this is like that we're having to discuss dealing with climate change as a business proposition as a business case because it's just the reality that we live in now. So I guess there's no real question. I'm just depressed.
1: Well, I mean, it's certainly unfortunate, Dylan. I mean, nobody wants to get punched in the face and then already be punched in the face when they realize they're getting punched in the face. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like, right? (laughs) Like Something has to really happen to be like, oh, no, we have to do something about this. And that is the situation that we have put ourselves in. So yes, I mean, it's unfortunate and it stinks, but it is the reality of what we have to deal with. But there's that's not saying that it's too late. Um, It's just saying that we really need to get on the ball and think about how this is going to affect our communities and what we can all do collectively to help mitigate some of the risks and not put ourselves and especially vulnerable populations at risk when these events do happen?
0: Well, to our grandchildren listening 40 years from now, uh, we tried. (laughs) Um. I I I
1: certainly hope we can say that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you both for coming on, Chris. uh, Thanks for coming on and hashing this out with us. And you're in Michigan. So you you had to bear a lot of the brunt brunt of that heat wave and stormage. So good job making it through. Yep. Thank you,
2: Dylan. It's been a pleasure being. It's been a pleasure talking with you and Aaron today. Aaron, thanks for being on.
1: Thanks, Dylan. It's actually still pretty hot here in Austin. I'm a little. I'm a little peeved. I was gone. I was out of Texas uh, the past week and a half. I was in Colorado, where temperatures were pretty mild. Upon returning, I found out that I missed the most mild week in Austin. So it's still pretty hot here, and we're still dealing with a lot of the heat. But good to have this discussion with you and Chris today about what the whole country is doing to try to deal with excessive sweatiness.
0: (laughs) Well, please stay hydrated. You can find our research and media at etsinsights.com. Uh, you can find us on social media at dylockwood at aaron hardick at chris underscore moyer 13 and at z prime underscore research Uh, there's still time to register for the solar storage fest in san antonio august 28th head over to ssfest.co that's ssfest.co to learn more and to register my name is dylan and we'll see you all next